0: So we've been working our way through the book of Galatians. And today we find ourselves in Galatians chapter 3. The first uh, part of chapter 3. And if you remember, the book of Galatians is written to a number of churches. That Galatia is not a city, but it's a region. And that there's several churches, several cities and several churches within this region. That Paul went to Galatia. He proclaimed the gospel. That people were saved. They received the gospel of Jesus Christ. They were born again. And that as he left, the churches began to struggle with various things. The teachers had come in and they'd begun to pervert the gospel of Christ. They'd begun to say, not only do you need Jesus, but you also need to keep the law. You need to keep these certain dietary rules. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the Old Testament law in addition to having Jesus. They said you can't truly be saved unless you follow this set of rules and these, these ordinances, and these rituals. And Paul is writing this letter to correct that thinking. If you remember, he said there's one gospel, the gospel of grace. Grace being God's unmerited, unearned favor. And he said, and any other gospel is not a gospel at all, regardless of the messenger who brings it. And that God is the one who opens people's eyes to the truth of the gospel. God changes people's lives through the power of the gospel. And God encourages people's hearts through the proclamation of the gospel. And then last week we saw that the gospel offers saving faith. That faith in Christ justifies sinners, not the works of the law. And also that the gospel offers living faith. That faith in Christ sanctifies, it sets apart sinners and makes them holy. So this, this theme re- reoccurs again and again and again throughout the book of Galatians. And Paul says it many different ways, many times over. That you're not only saved by grace, but that you grow by grace. And that when you add your good works to that, it's no longer grace and it's no longer So that's the context with which we come to Galatians 3, verses 1-5. through Let's look at that. If you'll stand with me for the reading of God's Word. (laughs) You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? So then, does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? May the Lord add a blessing to the reading, the hearing, and the applying of His Word. Amen. You may be seated. Excuse me. <clears throat> so, in this text, Paul asks five rhetorical questions. In other words, he asks five questions in which the answer is clearly implied. And this is a great teaching device to ask a question where the answer is implied, where the answer is obvious, but to never actually make the statement. And that's what Paul does here. So today we're going to look at each of these questions one at a time. Each question corresponds with a verse. So question 1 is verse 1. Question 2 is verse 2 and so on. We're going to look at each of these questions and consider what Paul was teaching the churches in Galatia. And as we look at these five rhetorical questions, we'll see that they become a springboard, if you will, for understanding five key truths about the grace of God. So five key truths about the grace of God. So without further delay... Let's consider the first question. Paul begins by asking, verse 1, he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? When Paul asks, who has bewitched you? He's not referring to some sort of literal evil spell. Instead, the word carries the idea of deception or trickery. In other words, what Paul is saying is, he's saying, who has deceived you? Who tricked you? Furthermore, Paul is not so much calling out those who have done the deceiving as he is those who, are, those who are being deceived. Those who have allowed themselves to be deceived. In other words, he doesn't say, Oh, you evil people who are deceiving others. There are Scriptures where that happens. But in this text, what he, he doesn't say that. In essence, what he's saying is, Oh, you foolish Galatians! Why did you allow yourselves to be led astray? Why did you allow yourselves to be deceived? I don't normally quote the J.B. Phillips paraphrase, but I love what the J.B. Phillips paraphrase actually says about this particular text. It says this. He drives the point home nicely. He says, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia! Who has been casting a spell over you? Surely you cannot be so idiotic. He says... You dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic to let these people deceive you in this way. You see, Paul's words are strong and pointed, and they're, but they're not meant to be hurtful. Instead, Paul spoke these words out of love and genuine concern for the churches in Galatia. In fact, I think we can argue that it would be more cruel for him to not speak these words, to not be forth. Forthright in what he sees as wrong in the churches in Galatia. Because they were abandoning the gospel of grace and to say nothing would be cruel. There's a great lesson for us in this. We know in Scripture, Scripture tells us faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. That we are called to speak truth, to call one another out. Proverbs 28.23 says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. That we are indeed called to speak truth. And that the loving thing is to call each other out when we see each other departing from the truth of the Gospel. However, while this passage, this is evident from this passage, I don't want to go too far down that road It would be very easy to preach a message about how we are to call each other out, how we are to confront one another, but that's not the main thrust of the passage. It's an implication, but it's not the main point. The main point of this text is that it would be utterly foolish to abandon the Gospel of grace and pursue a right standing with Him based on our own righteousness. Let me say that again. It would be utterly foolish Foolish to abandon the grace of God and try to be righteous before God in our own strength. He says that is foolish. It's idiotic. So with that in mind, that main idea in mind, let's consider the first of our five observations based on Paul's questions. The first point in our sermon outline is, number one, God by His grace awakens us. God by His grace awakens us. Let's return to our first question in verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You foolish Galatians, how did you let yourself be deceived? And he says, That is you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You see, Paul calls them foolish because they've been deceived even after Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This doesn't mean that they were physically present at the crucifixion. The point that Paul is driving home is that when the Gospel was preached to them in Galatia, their eyes were opened in such a way that they knew it to be true. That it was evident to them. It was as though it happened right before them. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you know what He means. You understand when you first came to believe the truth of the Gospel. When you understood that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. When you understood that your sin had separated you from God, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God was salvation through Jesus Christ. And when you understood what Christ had done for you by dying on the cross, by being raised on the third day, when you understood that He had taken the penalty that you rightly deserved, it was real to you. It was as though it happened right before you. And that's what Paul is driving at here. He's saying, this was evident to you. When God in His grace opened the Galatians' eyes to the Gospel, it it was as though Jesus had been crucified right in front of them. So Paul shows his dismay. That even after that experience, they allowed themselves to be deceived. How could they possibly depart from the Gospel after that experience? This should bring to mind what Paul said in Galatians 1 a few weeks ago. We read in verses 6-8, through he said, I am amazed that you are so quickly, and the word there refers to readily, you're so easily or readily deserting Him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Paul said, I'm amazed, I'm astonished that you would do this, that you would turn away from the truth of the gospel for a different gospel, which isn't even another gospel at all. You see, Paul's aim in verse 1 is to remind the Galatians to remind the believers there that it was God's grace that opened their eyes to the truth of the Gospel. So having seen point number one, God by His grace awakens us, now let's consider point number two, God by His grace saves us. Number two, God by His grace saves us. Look at verse two. He says, This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Again, the answer is obvious. They received the Holy Spirit, not by keeping the law, not by observing some ordinance, such as keeping a certain diet, or being circumcised, but instead by hearing with faith. Somebody uh, was, today had asked me about the Advent candle, and they said, what is, the, what is this candle about? What, what, what is this wreath and these candles about? Because they'd never, they hadn't experienced this before. And the point is, it was a tradition, I explained, oh, it's just a tradition where we count down until Christmas. So it's a tradition whereby we remember the coming of Jesus Christ. Week after week, we count down. There's four weeks until Jesus comes. Three weeks until Jesus comes. Two weeks until Jesus comes. One, where we count down until Christmas to remember the, all the Old Testament saints who looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. And we look back upon the coming of the Messiah, but also we look forward to His coming again. That it's a glorious remembrance of what Christ has done for us. But this remembrance that we have doesn't save us. Nor does baptism. Nor does communion. Nor do the things that we do. They're a remembrance and they're important for us to remember that Christ, what Christ did for us. That salvation comes by hearing with faith. And when we hear with faith, the Holy Spirit fills us. He comes upon us and transforms us. You see, the Galatian believers heard the Gospel. God opened their eyes to the truth of the Gospel and they heard with faith. They believed the Gospel. They trusted in the Gospel. That's what Paul's driving at. And the question we have to ask ourselves is have we heard with faith? Because there are many who have heard the Gospel, maybe even who believe the Gospel, they believe that Jesus died for their sins, and yet they're not trusting in Jesus and Him alone. So the question we have to ask is, have we heard with faith? Have we placed our trust in the Gospel? Have we thrown ourselves on the mercy of God and said, not by my doing, not by my religious rituals or by my good works am I going to be saved, but instead by what Christ has done on the cross for us. That's what Paul is speaking of here. And what was the result of them doing this? Of throwing themselves on the mercy of God? God saved their souls. And the evidence of that fact was that they received the Holy Spirit. Paul is saying in essence, let me remind you Galatian believers, you received the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't through keeping the law that you received Him, but it was by grace, through faith. It was God's Unmerited favor that He bestowed on you, that allowed you to receive the Holy Spirit. So you see, the fact that they received the Spirit was proof positive that God had indeed saved them, that He had rescued their souls. This becomes clear in Acts ten and Acts fifteen, where Peter goes and he actually preaches to the Gentiles, and the Gentiles receive the Spirit, and they say, "Whoa! They actually they believed the gospel. They were saved. And how did we know it? We knew it because they received the Holy Spirit." It was evidence of their regeneration. It was evidence of their being saved. The same is true today. That's why 1 John 4.13 says, By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He's given us His Spirit. The Spirit lives in us, and that's how we know that we are indeed saved. Romans 8.16 also says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then lastly, it's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, so you heard it, you believed it, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is given to you as a pledge of our inheritance. It's like a down payment is the picture here. That's the word pledge. It's given as a down payment that you know that you have been saved because God's put a deposit on your soul and Jesus is coming back to claim it. He says, you know you're saved because you received the Holy Spirit. So having seen that God by His grace awakens us as evidence by His opening our eyes to the truth of the Gospel, and God by His grace saves us, as evidenced by Him giving us the Holy Spirit, now let's consider thirdly, that God by His grace grows us. God by His grace grows us. And my fear is that as Christians, we, you'll track with me to this point. You'll say, of course we're, God opens our eyes to the truth of the Gospel. Of course we're saved by grace. But then somehow we think that we grow by our own human effort. I think that's one of the biggest problems actually in the church today. Is that we actually think that somehow we get saved and then we pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we actually are in charge of our own Christian growth. That it's not God working in us. That is a ridiculous and most egotistical view. God is the one who works in us. That's what Scripture says. Look at verse 3 with me. Paul asks, he says, Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, it would be foolish, stupid, utterly, utter folly to think that someone can be perfected. That they can grow in holiness by human effort. Sanctification, growing in holiness, like salvation, being being declared righteous and holy, will only happen by God's grace. This doesn't negate our, our need for good works. And, and the problem was that some in Galatia were probably coming and saying, if you push this grace thing too far, don't you know what's going to happen? The people are going to live like wild animals. They're going to be doing all kinds of crazy things. You can't tell them that everything's all about grace. You need to, you need to lay down the law for them. And Paul says, that's foolish. They need to live by the Spirit. They need to claim God's grace. And when somebody understands the grace of God, they can't help but live in light of the grace of God. You see, the Christian life cannot be lived in your own strength. You will fall again and again and again. It's only until you look to God to carry you that it can be lived. Ephesians 2, 8-10, verses we know well. For by grace you've been saved through faith, Right? It's not of works that no man may boast, but we are saved. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That there is a purpose in him saving us, and that the result, the natural result, should be good works. Hear this there's human effort in our spiritual growth. So don't hear me say oh, there's no human effort. There's human effort in our spiritual growth. Right? Paul, uh, Paul, Bill is going to school. And Bill actually has to get up and travel to school. He has to put effort in that. right? There's human effort in that. That there are days when I get up and I don't want to read my Bible. I'm going to, I'll tell you the truth. I'd much rather sit in my chair, drink coffee, watch the news, read the news, whatever. Right? There's human effort that says, got to do this. We have endeavored... Not because of us, not because we're great, but because God is great. We've endeavored in our family to to live by the rule. Kim and I have tried to live by the rule. No Bible, no breakfast, right? You have no place eating food if you have not fed on the word of God. That's the rule we try to live by. Now, maybe, maybe that's not you. I, I don't know how you do it. Maybe you read your Bible after breakfast. That's not wrong. The point is that there's human effort, there's human effort in our spiritual growth. However, it doesn't happen apart from divine enabling. It's God in His grace enabling us to live that out. It's not because we are so great. It's not that Bill is so wonderful that he's gone to school. It's a gift of grace that God has allowed him to go and enabled him to go and gives him the motivation to go. So there's human effort and spiritual growth, but it doesn't happen apart from enabling. That's why Paul tells the Philippians, he says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work at it. Work hard at it. And then he says, For it is God who is at work in you. He says, Work out your salvation, for God is at work in you. Both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He says, put human effort into it, knowing that God will enable you to do it. It's also why Paul speaks of his own experience in 1 Corinthians fifteen ten, And he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's God's grace. It's not me. And then he says, and His grace toward me didn't prove vain, but I labored. I worked. Even more than all of them, all the other apostles, I worked hard. And then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. You see, no matter how hard you try, fleshly efforts will not, fleshly efforts alone will not produce God-glorifying growth and righteousness. It will only happen as God pours out his grace on you. You know the beautiful thing? God has promised to finish that which he starts. God has promised in his word that he who began a good work in you will carry it through to completion. So when you step out and you put in that human effort that God and His grace will meet you there. He'll pour His grace upon you. So having seen point number one, that God by His grace awakens us, that He opens our eyes to the truth of the Gospel. Number two, that God by His grace saves us, that we have evidence of that by His giving us the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, that God by His grace grows us as evidenced by the fact that our flesh is weak, but the Spirit bears wonderful fruit Let's consider fourthly, that God by His grace sustains us. So God awakens us, grows, saves us, grows us, and fourthly, sustains us. Paul asks in verse 4, Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? And We don't know what kind of suffering the Galatian churches endured. There's really not a lot of uh, evidence as to exactly what was going on in Galatia. And some have said that this word suffer simply means experience. That he's saying that what he's really saying is, did you experience so many things? Because the word suffer can be used in that way. Did you experience so many things in vain? Or is he talking about real suffering, like persecution, or sickness, or trials? What we do know is this, that suffering and persecution were common experiences in the early church. And we do know that the false teachers, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, they were motivated by fear. Probably fear of those who were persecuting them. So these ideas of suffering and persecution were common in the early church, but they're also to be expected by believers of all ages. That's what Jesus taught. That's what the Scripture teaches us. And the purpose of suffering is to grow us, to mold us and make us into the image of Christ. That's Romans eight twenty eight and 29, right folks? That, that God is working all things together for good, for those who love Him, for those who are called according to His purpose... Right? And what does, that, what does that look like? Who are those people and what does that look like? And that's to mold us and make us into the image of Christ. That's what verse 29 says. That God is working all things together to make you more like Jesus. So when trials come your way, the response should be, praise God, I get an opportunity to be more like Jesus. Because God in His grace... Sustains us. And He sustains us in the midst of trials and suffering so that He might grow us. 1 Peter 5, 8-10 through 10, He says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. But resist him. How? Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That God in his grace will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That God will have his purpose in suffering. So when Paul says, Did you suffer so many things in vain? He's asking, Did you forget the outcome or the result of your suffering? Have you forgotten the grace that God poured out to you during that time? That as you suffered, God's grace was with you. He sustained you through it. He allowed you to endure. You see, suffering should drive us to our knees. It doesn't mean that it always does. But it should. And oftentimes when it doesn't, the suffering gets worse and worse and worse. We should be quick to our knees, folks. Suffering should drive us to our knees. It should strip us of any self sufficiency we might have and cry out to God for His grace. That's what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10, when he said, my, He has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I'm content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul understood that when he was stripped of his own power, he had to rely on God's power to sustain him. You see, Paul's argument goes something like this. He says, Galatians, you experienced suffering, and in that suffering, you saw your own weakness. Your own ability to stand up under pressure. Are you now going to be so foolish so as to let that suffering not have its perfect result? Are you so stupid that you're, not, that you're now going to turn back to your own strength? Don't do that. And I've been there. I relate to the Galatians, right? There's been mornings when I've said, I, I can't do this. Especially preaching through Zechariah, frankly. As I was preaching through that text, there were times when I thought, I can't do this, God. Uh, the prophet Zechariah is saying, what does, this Lord, what does this mean, Lord? And I'm saying the same thing. Like, what does this mean, Lord? I don't know. What are, you, what are you trying to teach me through this? And I've had to rely on God's strength. But then, when that strength comes, there are times when God has sustained me through that when I've turned back to my own strength. And I've thought, oh, I've got this. This is easy. You know, oh, Galatians 1? No problem. And Paul says, don't be a fool. God stripped you of your strength. He drove you to your knees. Don't turn back to your own strength. Don't be so foolish as to not let suffering and trials have their perfect result. It's like the person who has cancer and cries out to God, and then their cancer is cured, and they abandon God altogether once again. He says, don't be like that. Remember your weakness. Cry out to God and let Him sustain you. Let Him give you the endurance you need to finish So having seen, God by His grace awakens us. God by His grace saves us. God by His grace grows us. And God by His grace sustains us. Let's consider fifthly, that God by His grace empowers us. God by His grace empowers us. Look at verse 5 with me. Paul asks this. He says, So then, does He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law Or by hearing with faith? He's saying, come on, Galatians. This this God who's provided you with the Spirit and worked miracles, does He do so because you've kept the law? Or has He done so because you turned to Him in faith? Again, the answer is that it's not works of the law, but by hearing with faith. However, notice also that Paul draws special attention to the giving of the Spirit and the working of miracles. The word miracles simply means power. In other words, Paul isn't necessarily referring to what we think of when we hear the word miracles. And often we read a text like this and we think, what does this have to do with me? I haven't seen any miracles. Well, you should have. When we hear the word miracles, we think of things like parting the Red Sea and turning water into wine and healing the sick. And while those things aren't necessarily excluded from what was happening in Galatia, The idea that Paul is presenting here is the miraculous power of God in their lives. He's talking about getting up on Monday morning and going to work and being a good testimony. Every bit as much as he is talking about parting the Red Sea. He's talking about loving your husband when it's difficult. It's talking about being faithful to point your kids to the gospel when it's not easy, when you're tired. He's talking about honoring God with your finances when that coworker gets a brand new car and you look at it and you, you can't help but drool over it. And you say, no, I, I. the power of God is evident in my life. I need to live out the truth of the gospel. I need to live in such a way that I'm honoring Him. He's talking about the miraculous power of God in their lives, but it's not necessarily miraculous like we often think. This word is used again and again in Scripture, the word that's... Uh, miracle here is used again and again in Scripture to refer to the power of God, because that's what a miracle is—it's the power of God in the life of a believer. Acts one eight uses the same word. It says, "But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll receive power." That's what he's talking about. Acts four thirty three. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus and abundant grace was upon them, that grace was the source of that power. And 1 Corinthians 2, 1-5, Paul says to the Corinthian church, he says, I came to you, brethren, when I did so, I didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know am nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my message and my preaching, so he says, I didn't have strength in and of myself, it wasn't me. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words, but of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. It was miraculous. Paul says, when I came, I didn't have fancy words. When I came, I was not like I had some great wisdom that I was presenting in and of myself. It was through weakness and fear and trembling. But God's divine power was made manifest in that. And he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of man. It wouldn't rest on me, but instead on the power, the miracle of God. Paul goes on in Ephesians 3 and says, uses the same word again. I don't want to belabor the point, but Ephesians 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. We, we quote that a lot. I quote that verse a lot when praying. Right? God is able to do far more abundantly beyond all we can ask or think. How? According to the power, the miracle that works within you. He's saying God empowers you to do far more than you can ask or think. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. That's why Peter says His divine power has granted us all things pertaining to life and godliness. You take that word miracle and replace it with power because it's the same thing. It's God's divine power that Paul is talking about to the Galatians here. So Paul's point is that God had given them power to live godly lives. He had miraculously intervened. His divine power had been made manifest in them. He says, you were walking this way, Galatians. God picked you up. He turned you around and he caused you to walk a different way. His power was made known in your lives. So, why would you turn back that way? To turn back to your own strength, or to even think that you can continue in that direction in your own strength, is folly. And it would ultimately nullify the grace of God. So, by way of review, we see five points. God, by His grace, awakens us, as evidenced by His opening our eyes to the truth of the gospel. God, by His grace, saves us as evidenced by His giving us the Holy Spirit. God, by His grace, grows us as evidenced by the fact that our flesh is weak while the Spirit bears fruit in our lives. God, by His grace, sustains us as evidenced by God enabling us to stand up under trials, that it's Him that is sustaining us. It's not our own strength. And then lastly, God, by His grace, empowers us as evidenced by Him using us for His glory and enabling us to live godly lives. So here's the big question. question we've all been waiting for. So how do we, as Harmony Bible Church, both individually and corporately, specifically apply all of this to our lives? How do we take this text, these five points, and then live in light of them? Well, if you're not a believer, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, Maybe you're here today. You're under collusion. Maybe maybe somebody dragged you here. Said, "Well, it's Christmas time. You have got to come to church with me." I remember when I was dating Kim in high school. I was not a believer. I don't. This is way off topic. She she uh, we made an agreement, an arrangement that I'd go to church three times. I went three times. That was it. Um, for, praise God that God grabbed a hold of my heart later on, but. Maybe you're here today under similar circumstances. Fine, I'll go, but I'm only going... Or maybe you're here just because it's what you've always done on Sunday. But if you're not a believer, you haven't followed Jesus Christ, you haven't committed your life to Christ, you're not trusting fully in Him and His grace, I pray that today, by His grace, by His unmerited favor, He has opened your eyes to the truth of the gospel. That He's awakened you to the reality of what Christ has done. But I also pray that not only has He by His grace awakened you, that by His grace He has saved you. That you throw yourself on the mercy of God. That it's not just believing a certain set of facts, but instead trusting in what God has done. That you trust the Gospel. And that by His grace you are saved. And that you receive the Holy Spirit as a sign of the fact that you are indeed rescued from your sin. So that's if you're not a believer. I pray that's, that would be the case today. But if you are a follower of Jesus, which I assume many of us are here because we are followers of Christ, that we're here and we want to honor the Lord, we want to remember the Gospel, we want to praise Him on Sunday morning and every day. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I pray that you remember what God did for you in the gospel you remember that God has awakened you, that He opened your eyes. I pray that you remember that God has saved you, that He's given you the Holy Spirit. And all of that is by grace. It's not something you've done yourself. It's not because you're such a great person. It's because God showed you unmerited, unearned favor. But I also pray that you continue to look to Him for grace. That you continue to look to him, that you no longer, that you say, that was grace, and all the rest of it is me living out my faith in my own strength. But instead, that you recognize that by grace he will grow you, that he'll make you more like Jesus, that you'll grow in your knowledge day by day as you turn to him. That you say, Lord, apart from you, I can't do this. But I want to remain in you. Just as Jesus said, Abide in me. Abide in the vine and you will grow. Apart from me, you can't do it. I pray that today you will look to Him for grace knowing that He will grow you. I pray that today you will look to Him for grace knowing that He will sustain you. That He's going to keep you. That you're going to be able to stand up under trials if you look to Him. That when you try to stand up in your own strength, that you will falter and fail. So don't do it. Look to Jesus, the One who will carry you through trials. And ultimately, use those trials for His glory. And then I pray that today, you will look to Him for grace, knowing that He will empower you. He will allow you to live a godly life. That this message, all this talk about grace is not just about going and doing whatever we want. It's not about living a life of wanton pleasure. Instead, it's about throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and then Him empowering us. His divine power, His miracle has granted to you all things pertaining to life and godliness. He's enabled you to do that, to live a life that's pleasing to Him. In other words, without His divine power, you can't. That's the opposite of that verse. That God in His grace has empowered you. And He's empowered you to go out and share the truth of this message to a lost and dying world. This this isn't my job, folks. This isn't about me... Telling the world that Jesus died for them. This is about God empowering you to live for His glory. To be witnesses here and to the remotest parts of the world. That God is calling you to give Him glory by proclaiming the truth of the Gospel. So I pray that you remember that God has awakened you. That you, that you remember that God has saved you. And that you remember that God will grow you. God will sustain you. And God will empower you all by His grace.